I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. The FT. Hello and welcome back to FT Science. This week, we take an optimist's tour into the future. And one of the things that I went to see was a bacteria that eats carbon dioxide and excretes gasoline, and a machine that can take carbon dioxide directly out of the ambient air. So if you combine those two technologies together, you have the possibility of creating a carbon-neutral petrol station. And we discover why smoking keeps your weight down. Nicotine receptors, even though they're on all sorts of nerve cells throughout the brain, predominantly stimulate those nerve cells that tell you it's okay to stop eating. I'm Clive Cookson, and you're listening to FD Science. Our regular guest, Diana Garnham, Chief Executive of the Science Council, is in the studio with me. Hello, Diana. Hello, Clive. And our special guest this week is Mark Stevenson, writer, comedian and science communicator. Welcome, Mark. Thanks for having me. This year, you published An Optimist's Tour of the Future. And as the book's subtitle puts it, one curious man sets out to answer, what's next? So, Mark... What is coming next, and why should we be optimistic about it? Uh, Well, you shouldn't shouldn't necessarily be optimistic about it. I do believe that we're in the middle of a revolution at the moment, which a lot of people don't realise is going on. So what's happening with nanotech and biotech and infotech and the way they're combining is going to have fundamental implications to the way we run our society and, and indeed our morals. And I think we can only have a nuanced debate about that if more and more people are informed. And I'm not saying that the future will be better. I'm saying it could be and we still have everything to play for. Uh, what I got very worried about is when we talk about the future, we often talk about it just being a damage limitation exercise at best and almost as if an optimism of ambition about our future has been taken off the table. And the one thing I do know is if you don't have good dreams, you're never going to make them come true. So my shtick, if I have one, is not very revolutionary. It's simply, you know, have an optimism of ambition and then use your best creative and critical thinking skills to get there. Of course, the danger about too much optimism is that it leads to complacency. And I think that Scatham School would say you need rather to terrify people about awful visions of apocalyptic <laughs> climate change, for example, in order to get a sense of urgency to do anything about it. I think all these points of view are important. What one of the things I do know is if you don't imagine the future can be better, if you're absolutely convinced it's never going to be better, then a lot of people give up. They find it very debilitating. I do a lot of work in schools, for instance, and when you present this apocalyptic version of the future to children, it actually makes them very depressed. And there's a lot of research that says that they withdraw from it. Except, of course, then being children, then they go, well, can we do anything about it? And then you go, well, yes, there's lots of things we can do about it, and here's what. And then they go, oh, brilliant, fine, I can get on now. So I'm not against pessimists, but I like to recast them as critical friends. Well, we'll get on to your work communicating science in schools and elsewhere later, but sticking a bit to the optimists' tour, what most excited you about what's happening, things that might really make life better in 10, 20, 50, 100 years? 
I don't think it was one thing. I get asked this question a lot, and the thing I think that excited me the most was the way that technologies can combine in extraordinary ways. So an example I often use is the idea of synthetic biology, which is now allowing us to change the way bacteria works, do incredible things, so harnessing the power of life. And one of the things that I went to see was a bacteria that eats a carbon dioxide and excretes gasoline. So this is interesting. But I went to see another technology out of Columbia University, which is in its nascent stage, has to be said, but is looking promising, which is a machine that can take carbon dioxide directly out of the ambient air. So if you combine those two technologies together, and I asked the two scientists to go and talk to each other, and they did, you have the possibility of creating a carbon-neutral petrol station that can take its fuel directly out of the sky. Now, it sounds like a mad idea until you realise that ExxonMobil have just given Craig Venter $600 million to look into that very idea. He's the creator of this first synthetic genome, isn't he? Yes, yes. He's not a modest man. He says, I have this small ambition of replacing the entire petrochemical industry. Has he got a chance of doing that? I think he has a chance, yes, certainly, definitely. I've often felt, though, as a science journalist for, shall we say, decades, that a lot of the things that I write about turn out in retrospect to be overhyped. There's too much excitement about them, and then it doesn't happen. Currently, the Human Genome Project, for example. I think that's true, and and I have to say, I think a lot of science journalism is often to blame for that. What tends to happen is, and I've seen recent examples of this, of journalists decrying what's happened with the Human Genome Project, and and it's kind of like, oh... Uh, scientists fail to live up to headline writers' expectations. How dare they? How, how dare they fail us? And you see a lot of this. I and mean, the Daily Mail in particular is very bad at this. Every week they've cured cancer or, you know, uh, or water cures cancer or something. And what they've done is they've taken a small piece of research, overhyped it in a direction that makes a good headline, and then they lambast scientists for not living up to those headlines. Who was the book for? I mean, you're obviously optimistic and enthusiastic, but who's going to pick this book up and read it? Well, I'm not, I'm not intrinsically optimistic for a start. I, actually, the book didn't start off with the word optimist in the title. It was actually originally called A World Tour of the Future. And um, I'm very interested in communicating the science and what it, what it means to us. But I became aware that lots of science books are written for people like me. They're written for people who read popular science books and subscribe to new scientists. And um, I think the issues that come about with things like nanotech and biotech and the ethical issues in particular are so important that I think they should reach a wider audience. So that's why I try to do as many things as I can that, that go outside that. So the book looks deliberately like a travelogue and it looks like a comedy travelogue. In fact, it looks very much like a Bill Bryson book and deliberately so, um, so that my mother will read it. And she just has actually and said she enjoyed it very much, which is good. But I also do stand-up comedy. I write comedy. I run a learning consultancy, I I talk in schools, I talk to organisations quite a lot now, including some banks about how to think about the future. So it's always about reaching new audiences. And I think that goes back to the first point you made, I think, was that you need to engage with people to be part of the debate about what's going to happen in the future and how science is used. And actually, if we keep talking science to them and they were switched off or didn't understand or weren't interested, then we need to write in different ways to attract new audiences to engage in the debate. One of the things I'm very happy about is I get lots of emails daily now from people saying, I I didn't expect to learn so much about science reading your book, but I haven't, thank you so much. And it's everything from school children who have now decided to take science at university because they've read my book. But my, perhaps my favourite actually did come from a scientist who said, my husband's been working at Harvard Medical School for years in the genetics department. I've never understood what he does, but now I've read your book, I do. So <laughs> That is a true compliment. And for young people, I think you also picked up the bit about altruism and optimism being very strong, and everything I've done would echo that. But is the science community basically optimistic in the fact that it's searching for new things and feels they're out there to find? Or is it pessimistic, do you think? I think science, by its very nature, is an optimistic profession. You go into it, you know, trying to find new stuff. Pessimists don't do that. (laughs) Pessimists go in trying to knock down existing stuff. So I think, at its very core, science is an optimistic calling, definitely. I think engineers are even more optimistic because they go, OK, now I've found it out, what can I do to fix it? So so on the scale, I say engineers are the most optimistic and then scientists a little bit below. What's your own background? Do you have a science 
background yourself? No, I have technology background, so I have a degree in information technology, and I was a cryptography consultant for a while, but I was also a musician, and I'm, I'm sort of an unemployable dilettante, really. Uh, That's the sort of person you need to pull it all together, don't you? You want someone without any particular specialty. I've got a middle-of-the-road science background myself in chemistry, halfway between the biological and the physical sciences, and I feel that helps psychologically too. But you can do it with no science background at all. I think because I am stupid to a certain extent, I ask the sort of stupid questions that most people ask. But because I have a background in communication and because I'm quite good at writing, obviously being a stand-up and all that kind of stuff, you learn to write, I'm able to pull it together. And I figure if I can understand and explain to myself then other people understand it. But so. isn't that why public engagement is so important? Because when you have a mixed audience, they actually do ask very good joined-up questions because they view the world in a different way. Yeah. And they join it up where you've got a platform of people who are all speaking about the issue from their particular silo. Yeah. And their audience often doesn't do that. That's why I think it's such a rejuvenating way of taking forward science discussion. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm unashamedly a generalist. Uh, and also because innovation, both in how we think about things and, you know, how we actually discover things, always happens on the uh, intersection of things, never never really in a silo. And that's one of the problems with the way science works at the moment, in that we, we often siloise our scientists into a place where they can't innovate. And also they become rather scared of, of, of talking to people outside their field of expertise because they might not know the answer, uh, which is kind of uh, kind of ridiculous, I think. So I'm, I'm all for engineered serendipity, as, as much, as much f- smashing together of people and ideas as possible, I, I say. I feel that scientists themselves are, on the whole, gross generalisation, becoming much better at communicating with the public. Do you agree? I absolutely agree. That's not fast enough, and there's still a scientific old guard that rather um, thinks of science communication in the way that Lindsay Lohan regards the highway code as a sort of (laughs) troublesome bore. Or they give it lip service by doing two extremely dry lectures twice a year to a bunch of their peers who are already interested, you know. And the thing is that they'll still lament the fact that people aren't interested in science, you know, and it's kind of like, well, you can't engage in science communication in this rather lacklustre way. And then also tell your colleagues off for spending their time engaging with the public and then also complain that the public aren't engaged with science. Apparently you're not a proper scientist if you engage in science. If I had a pound for every time somebody had slagged off Brian Cox to me in the last year, I'd probably have to take Brian out for quite a nice dinner. I wouldn't tell him how I funded it obviously, that would be rude. (laughs) (laughs) To have effective engagement A, we need the scientists willing and able to do it and that's improving, they're not fast enough. But B, we need some sort of forum in which they are going to engage, whether it's the media, whether it's festivals. Mm-hmm. What do you think about the, the fora that are available? Well, I think the fora are amazing. I mean, ever since I've written my book, I mean, the, a book is one, stand-up comedy is another. I'm, you know, I mean, I started doing scientific stand-up comedy about four or five years ago, and now there's a whole bunch of people kind of doing it. You know, you've got the Robin Ince crowd, you know, and working with people like Ben Goldeck and all that kind of stuff, and I think that's amazing. Um, I'm doing, I think, four rock festivals this summer. You wow. know, in, <laughs> you know, and I mean, I used to be in a band, but I'm actually, I'm actually getting onto better stages as a science communicate than I ever did as a musician which is <laughs> de- desperately ironic but you know I, I talk at schools I've also been, but I also I mean I'm doing a, a, some work with The Economist I've just been asked to talk to the senior management of Standard Chartered Bank you know people want to engage with these ideas but I think the way science communication has often been done is as kind of a talking down to people and, and often you know if you haven't done a science degree you're kind of regarded as not worth talking to by some science. I've just spent a few days at the Cheltenham Science Festival And I think one of the good aspects of festivals like that is that they actually take science into a town centre and people can 
bump into it. They don't have to make a special arrangement to go and find out about science. I think one of the next steps for the science community is to engage with people where they are. So in shopping centres and in the high street and in schools and women's institutes and church groups and things, rather than expecting them to come to us. I think that's quite an unreasonable expectation. I think that's absolutely true. There's kind of science has almost kind of annexed itself from culture to a certain extent. It has to be embedded in culture in the same way that music is and fashion is and all those other things. It's part of who we are. I mean, it actually is the thing that defines us perhaps more than anything else. We evolved through culture and technology. You know, there aren't three dogs sitting around at the dog version of the FT in Battersea right now having this discussion. No, human beings evolved through science <laughs> and technology, and yet science and technology seems in some ways to have been annexed by the sort of the church of science. In fact, there's a brilliant book coming out called Free Radicals by my friend Michael Brooks, which talks about this brand science and how it's actually damaging to the advancement of science. And I recommend everybody should read it. My review copy arrived this week, and I'm going to review it for the FT. Fantastic. Now, I think it's time to move on to our monthly contribution from AAAS and Science. So over to Nadia Ramligan in Washington. Thanks, Clive. A new study in mice helps to explain why smokers are on average thinner than non-smokers and why people around the world report using smoking as a method of weight control. This research is available online at sciencemag.org. Marina Pachotto, professor of psychiatry at Yale University and co-author of the study, explains how nicotine decreases appetite by influencing receptors in the brain. We know that we absolutely have to take in calories to survive. It's evolutionarily essential for us to want to keep eating. Otherwise, we would waste away. And in fact, what we found is that it's easier to find genetic changes that cause you to gain weight than it is to find genetic changes that cause you to lose weight or to get lean. And what we found in this study is that nicotine receptors, even though they're on all sorts of nerve cells throughout the brain, predominantly stimulate those nerve cells that tell you it's okay to stop eating. And so what we found is that these nicotine receptors actually tip the balance at least a little bit in the direction of decreasing food intake and increasing metabolism as opposed to increasing food intake. Smoking remains the leading cause of death in many countries, and undoubtedly quitting smoking is the healthiest option for most people. How can your findings help people lose or control their weight in a less risky manner? I would actually modify that statement a little bit, and that is I think quitting smoking is the healthiest healthiest option in almost every case. Um, What we've been able to do is to identify a target for nicotine in the brain that is keeping people from stopping smoking in some cases. That is that the smokers who say that I keep smoking to control my body weight, if they could be offered an option of stimulating those receptors in a different way, then perhaps we can actually contribute to their motivation to quit. Maybe the existing smoking cessation medications would be enough for someone who wanted to quit, but if we could offer them the option of also helping to regulate their food intake while they're going through this process, that might actually encourage more people to quit. That's Maria Pachotto from Yale University. For AAAS, I'm Nadia Ramlagan. Back to you, Clive. Thanks, Nadia, and thanks to AAAS. I think that's quite a good way of engaging the public in a certain level of brain biology because smoking is such an issue in people's lives. Almost everyone will know someone who's trying to quit. And this idea that smoking helps keep your weight down, which turns out to be true, we've just heard, is often sort of portrayed by 
anti-smoking zealots as a myth. So it's something we need to take into account. And for teenage people, particularly teenage girls, it's very important. It's very clear. That's one of the reasons why a lot of girls do take up smoking, because they believe that. Going through my head was a slight worry that the tobacco industry may find another use for nicotine. So she didn't explore that very much in the study, but I wondered how closely it was the nicotine. Or Well, I wouldn't think there's anything wrong in the tobacco industry finding another use for nicotine. Indeed, I would applaud that. If it's nicotine without the smoke and nicotine does you good in some way, why not? Yeah, I mean, there's all sorts of things we'd like to find an alternative use for, isn't there? You know, Simon Cowell, for instance. (laughs) (laughs) Could the back industry find another use for Simon Cowell? I think we'd all applaud that. Well, thank you very much. I'm afraid that's all we have time for today. Please join us again next week. All that's left for me now is to thank Diana Garnham and Mark Stevenson for coming into the studio and to thank Nadia Ramligan for the AAAS contribution. And thank you for listening. FT Science was produced by LJ Filatrani. I'm Clive Cookson. Goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts.